I'm Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Sakara Life. So we have a very special episode for you all today. We recorded our first ever live podcast, and we did this with Dr. Robin Chutkin. And if you all remember, she was part of our first season and to this day is still one of the top downloaded episodes of all time. So you all clearly love her as much as we do. She is an incredible wealth of knowledge and leading the way in microbiome health. For those of you who might not be familiar with her work, Dr. Chutkin is the author of the digestive health books, Gut Bliss, The Microbiome Solution, and The Bloat Cure. Her latest book, The Antiviral Gut, will be released this fall in 2022. And she is the founder of the Digestive Center for Wellness, an integrative gastroenterology practice incorporating microbial optimization and nutritional therapy as part of the therapeutic approach to digestive disorders and autoimmune disorders. So today I chat with her on all things microbiome, nutrition, and their connection to our health and immune system. And as part of this special live episode, we did a Q&A with the audience at the end. So make sure you stick around to listen to that. Hi, Robin. Hi. Thank you so much for making the fact that I'm a butt doctor sound so much <laughs> more glamorous and significant. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's our job to turn uh, the mundane part of health and wellness into something sexy and seductive here at Sakara. It's our job. I'm going to call you Robin if that's okay. Oh, please, you know, everyone, yes. I consider you a dear friend and you're truly one of my most favorite people on the planet. I'm so honored Thank to have you. you back and dig into the gut and especially as it pertains to our immune system. But as hopefully everyone knows that's participating right now, we like to start every podcast off with a question around mission. And since this is your second episode, I know your mission has maybe changed a little bit or you're in a, a different chapter of your mission. So talk to us about your mission here on earth and what you're here to do and what you're doing right now. Yeah, thanks so much. You know, it has changed. In some ways, it, it's still very similar in terms of really empowering people to take control of their gut health. But I think there's another element to it, Danielle, with the pandemic, and that is a sense of reminding people that they're in the driver's seat. People are really scared and panicked. And while there are some diseases and some things that fall out of the sky and just flatten us, so many of the things that happen, if you think of autoimmune diseases, cancer, infectious things, we have some control over whether they happen and more importantly, the outcome. And so part of the mission now is to really give people this satisfaction and this more than satisfaction, this reassurance that they can actually live in a certain way by the choices they make, what they put on their plate, 
how they live, even the thoughts that they have that can really direct outcome and keep them safe. And I think there's just really never been a better time for that message of reassurance and confidence about our health. Even just hearing you say that, knowing, you know, the field that you're in, that you're a medical doctor, gives me so much assurance and and confidence in our future because it's such a holistic and scientific approach. Like I think most people think we have to choose, but I think when science is at its best, it's this balance of science and spirit and the two, we don't have to choose between the two. And later I want to get into what you spoke to about thoughts and how they impact our gut and our bacteria. But to set the stage, as we'll be talking about the immune system, I feel like we hear this quote all the time. It's like your 70% of your immune system lives in your gut. I think it's really hard to wrap our brains around what that means. So can you set the stage on what the immune system kind of is? And when we say 70% of it is in your gut, what does that mean? Sure. Yeah. It's a concept that even in medical school, I think really wasn't explained well. So let me break it down for you. If you think about the GI tract, and this is also one of these really simple but profound thoughts, things that are in our gut are not actually in our body. They're in this 30 foot long digestive superhighway that starts at our mouth and ends in our anus and runs the whole length of our body. And part of the goal of the digestive tract is to keep things that shouldn't be in our body outside. So even though we think it's in our gut, in our gut, in that lumen, inside the colon, the small intestine is actually not inside the body because we're separated. The gut contents are separated from the body by this very thin lining, the gut lining, sometimes referred to as an epithelial barrier, and it is only one cell thick. So on the outside of that membrane, which is the inside of the gut, just to be confusing, we have the food you're eating, the bacteria you're swallowing, the toxins you're exposed to. And then that selective membrane, one cell thick, has little holes in it. It's porous, like a fishing net. And that decides what goes through. So as the food gets broken down, it gets absorbed through the lining, certain nutrients, et cetera, go in, and then it keeps bacteria, viruses, et cetera, toxins out, assuming that the lining is in good health. And that's a whole other conversation. But what's right on the other side of that lining So within the gut, you have these trillions of bacteria, viruses, fungal organisms, protozoa, one cell organisms that are in the gut. And then right on the other side of the lining, you have these gazillions of immune cells. You have T helper cells, T killer cells, you have plasma cells that make antibodies. So they are literally separated by a one cell thick. It's like a razor's edge lining right? And everything that's happening in the gut lumen. And when I say the lumen, I mean the inside part of the gut where the food is going through and where the stool is eventually coming out. Everything that's inside the gut lumen there is communicating through the gut lining with all the immune cells on the other side. So if you think about the small intestine, a huge part of these immune cells are right on the other side of the gut lining in the small intestine. They're also in our spleen. They're in our tonsils. So, you know, a lot of them are in the GI tract there and they interact. So it's very much a hand and glove relationship, right? If your gut bacteria are off, that is going to inform all those complex reactions, the production of antibodies, the activation of the T cells. It's going to inform them because the microbes are really sort of giving the immune cells their marching orders, telling them what to do, modulating the immune response. So it's really all happening right there in the gut lining. 
It's so fascinating. Like one cell thick is so thin. I know, right? Like, what if you damage it? Yeah. I mean, I, it was going to be my next question, which is you can imagine, I don't know, there's not even a, it's, it's microscopic, like yes. one cell. So there's not even like a, something that we could say, oh, here's the size of it because it's microscopic. You can't even see it, which is crazy. But you can size-wise. I'm glad you mentioned that because obviously you can't see these microbes. They are truly microscopic. And we think it's about 100 trillion. We don't know. It could be a little more. It could be a little less. It's more than a billion bacteria in just one drop of fluid from your colon. But if you scrape them all up, it would weigh about four pounds. Right. Wow. So to give you a sense and you imagine each microbe is infinitesimally light. So a hundred trillion can't see them, but about four pounds. I don't know what the corollary is for the immune system, how much that would weigh if you could weigh all those cells. I have to ask one of my immunology buddies and get back to That's you. That's so interesting. I'm trying to like imagine because this is such new information for so many of us. And if you don't study nutrition or medicine, the idea that, okay, you have food in your digestive tract, you have, I guess people can imagine like digestive enzymes and bile acids, et cetera. And then now we have all of this biome of bacteria, viruses, et cetera. What is the communication? Like, why does it matter that we have certain bacteria over others? And what does that communication look like between our food, our gut, and then our immune system? Yeah, that's such a great question. And I want to get a little bit philosophic with the answer we are really like the hive. And like the hive, we are animated by the bees, right? So think of the microbes as the bees in a hive. So there's a physical structure. But if you think about when the food gets into the digestive tract, how is it actually getting broken down? How are the hormones getting synthesized? How are compounds getting detoxified? How is even the transfer of nutrients through the digestive membrane and who is training the immune system telling, we talked about that a minute ago, telling the immune system like, whoa, this is a big deal. Like get your army going versus, ah, you can relax. This is nothing. Who is even activating the genes, turning them on and off? Who is involved with creating new blood vessels, which is happening all the time, angiogenesis. So there are all these functions that are going on, you know, making hormones like serotonin, the feel-good hormone. So think of the microbes as the worker bees in your beehive. They're the little workers in the shop who are literally on the assembly line. And some of these things are pretty automated, right? Breathing is fairly automated, but a lot of these functions require these worker bee microbes to make sure that things are going well and to make adjustments and so on. So we are literally animated by our little critters. That's so meta, Robin. <laughs> It's not even animated. It's like we're the hive. That's crazy. Yeah. You know, I live in New York City and every time I like, come back from a trip and I drive in and I see the city like scape, I'm like, wow, I feel like a little bee in a hive with something greater. It's like, and that could be true all the way down to the microscopic level. Like I'm a hive for all of my microbes. I so love you, that. I love that actually. If New York City is a big hive, yeah. and then you're one of the worker bees in the hive. Exactly. And you as a worker bee have your own hive. Yeah. yeah. I think that's fantastic. So do you think we're, to tease out that philosophical question, do you think that we are more bacteria than human? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I know you're really familiar with the statistics. So we have about 10 times as many bacterial cells as we have human cells. And we have a couple million bacterial genes and just a few thousand human genes. So 
we are definitely more bacterial than human. And it's so interesting, Danielle, because I listen to all these podcasts or I read articles and people kind of scratching their head and going, wow, why do some people get really sick from COVID? Some people get exposed. They never get infected. Some people get infected, but they make a really quick recovery. Other people succumb. And it, to me, it's so clear. I mean, there are other factors. Yes, there are environmental factors and genes, but our microbes are a huge determinant. They are arguably the most important determinant. And actually the whole motivation for me writing the antiviral gut was a series of articles that came out. And the first one was one showing that looking at your microbiome is the most accurate predictor of outcome from COVID. So they said you wow. can, by examining and looking at the levels of two specific bacteria, one which you can think of sort of bad, Enterococcus faecalis, if that is high, bad outcome, the good one that I know you have a lot of because you eat so many veggies, Bacterium <laughs> prosnitzii, F. prosnitzii. If that one is high, you have a good outcome. And this predictability was 92% accurate. That was more accurate than looking at age, gender, presence of heart disease, lung disease, comorbidities, inflammatory markers combined. It was basically looking at the microbiome and the relative abundance of these different predictive species was the most accurate predictor of how people would do. And it's not that strange when you think about it, because people who are healthy do better when they get a cold, when they get cancer. So this idea, though, that what is it that determines whether somebody's healthy? It's not a lot of the things we've been thought to think of. It's really the health of our microbiome. So we have to look deeper at not just the sort of superficial things like, well, you look pretty good, but what's actually going on with the health of our microbes as a predictor? I feel as though we are constantly, especially in this field of, of nutrition and, and human health, constantly looking for the bottom or the root, so to speak. And we've looked at all sorts of things like health, especially mental health is in the brain. We've, and especially because everything is so systematized, it's like we try and find where the root cause is. And it sounds like everything just comes back to the gut, like every single thing. Well, you know, in medical school, <laughs> I was at Columbia for medical school and gastroenterology was just the least sexy field. Everybody was like, why would you want to spend your day wading through stool where you could be doing laser treatments on the skin or, you know, hand surgery or something cool like that. So I'm here to tell you the gut is where it's at. And I'm so glad everybody realizes that now, but, but just think quite seriously, think about where the gut is located, right? It's right in the center of our body. It is literally our engine. And then we have spokes going up. So we have our gut brain connection, bi-directional communication via the vagus nerve. And we talked about hormones like serotonin and GABA, et cetera, the majority of which are produced in our gut. And they travel up to the brain and direct the brain. And the brain also directs the gut. There's a gut-lung axis. There is communication with the heart and the kidneys and really all the different organs. So the gut is quite simply the engine for the whole rest of your body. And just like if you had a broken down engine, even if your windshield wipers and your headlights and your brakes still worked, your car would not get very far. It's like the queen bee to bring it back to your, <laughs> to your metaphor. It's like your gut is the queen bee. I think so. Yeah. And so talk me through exactly what, like I can't pronounce that 
species you just spoke to that's good to have in our gut. I don't have it memorized, but walk me through what that does in my gut versus the species that we shouldn't have too much of. Like, is it postbiotics? Is it, what, what is the interaction in the gut? Yeah, it's such a good question. And, and I just want to say at the outset that this idea of good versus bad, and I, I like to do this sometimes when I'm giving a talk, I'll say, okay, all the good people in the audience, raise your right hand. And all the bad people raise your left hand. And of course, most of us, like sometimes I'm very good and sometimes I'm not so good. Like there are some bacteria that are just bad, right? You just, yeah. Methicillin resistant staph aureus causes some flesh eating bacterial infections, bad. You don't want that. But a lot of the bacteria are what we call pathobionts. And it's such an interesting term. So patho for pathogen, bad. But a biont is part of the word symbiont, and symbionts are bacteria that live quite peacefully with us. So this is where we get into this concept of balance, Danielle. So if you have overrepresentation, so if you think of something like yeast, for example, and yeast are Canada are yeast, which are not bacteria, they're a different type of organism, but we all need a certain level of yeast in our digestive tract for digestion and really to be healthy. But when you take an antibiotic and it removes a lot of the healthy bacteria, the yeast overgrowth, they're like, oh, wow, there's all this extra space. I'm going to multiply out of control. And now you have yeast overgrowth. You don't really have a yeast infection. The yeast were there, but they've overgrown. So it's the same thing with a lot of this imbalance we talk about. And the medical term is dysbiosis, an imbalanced microbiome. And so we'll have overrepresentation. So even that Enterococcus faecalis, the bad guy I talked about, most of us have Enterococcus faecalis in our gut, but at low levels, it's under control. And it may be that Enterococcus faecalis at low levels is even churning out some metabolites that may be helpful. But when they overgrow, Enterococcus faecalis is one of the bacteria, for example, that's responsible for a lot of post-surgical infections. So when they overgrow and the levels are really high, that's a sign of a disrupted microbiome. And that's when you get into trouble because Enterococcus faecalis can actually penetrate that gut lining, get into the bloodstream and wreak havoc with internal organs, et cetera. When we think about the good bacteria, the one I know you are full of, I can look at you and tell you're full of <laughs> Galobacterium prasnitziae, or as I like to call them, F. prasnitziae, my favorite bacteria. It is the most prevalent bacteria in vegans, and it is protective against cardiometabolic disease, which means like heart disease, stroke, diabetes. It's protective against colon cancer. And as we found in these studies, it's protective against COVID. But here's the thing. You can't just go and borrow some F. prosnitzii from your vegan friend or from the health food store, because if you're not feeding the F. prosnitzii their preferred food, which is fiber, the levels that you have, even if you import some with a fecal transplant, they're just going to die. They're not going to colonize and reproduce. And so in this whole age of prebiotics and postbiotics and probiotics, I like to remind people that you can implant, transplant, ingest the healthiest bacteria out there by the truckload. But if you're not feeding them on a regular basis, the food, the preferred food of healthy gut bacteria, which is plant fiber, you're not going to get meaningful repopulation and colonization. So that's, you know, the whole good, bad. And, and the connection really is, and, you know, this stuff, Danielle, it is so beautifully designed and so simple. I just love it. So, so let me just, in a nutshell, give you the whole shebang. 
Right. You eat indigestible plant fiber, like a typical Saqqara meal, for example, you eat that fiber. It gets broken down by gut bacteria, for example, your F. prosnitzii, and they produce something called short-chain fatty acids, things like butyric acid, propionic acid, acetic acid, et cetera. Short-chain fatty acids also help to maintain the health of the gut, the lining of the gut, et cetera. But even more importantly, they are the main metabolite that are involved in modulating that immune response in making sure you don't have an exaggerated immune response, what we now know as cytokine storm, where your immune system responds so aggressively that it actually destroys your own tissues in the process, or an underactive immune system where you don't mount enough of an immune system to clear a virus or an infection. So you want that Goldilocks immune system. And you cannot have a Goldilocks immune system if you don't have sufficient levels of short-chain fatty acids. So it is an unhackable system. You have to do the work. You have to eat the food. There's no shortcut. Yeah. And so I know one of the best predictors to a healthy microbiome is getting enough plant diversity. Are there other things that are really important to making sure we are getting more of the good and the right amount of the less good? Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned diversity. And I know you're familiar with the study, the study from 2018 from the American Gut Project. And they looked at, for this study, they looked at over 50,000, I believe it was about 53,000 samples. And they found that the most important predictor of a healthy gut was the diversity of plants. And the magic number was 30 per week. And it really didn't matter what diet you ate, whether you were vegan or an omnivore or pescatarian, if you were getting more than 30 different plant foods per week, you were in a completely different category. And the people who were eating less than 10 were in the least healthy category. And, you know, this is really important to think about because I have patients who tell me all the time, like, oh, I'm a really good vegetable eater, but they eat the same thing. They eat steamed broccoli for dinner every night. And they we get emails like salad. that all the time. They're like, yeah. hey, I eat a healthy. I'm not really sure yes. why I should join. And I'm like, well, tell me about what healthy is to you. And it's So to, I it's would often be really that. interested in knowing, I bet it's high. So keeping in mind that magic number of 30 per week, like if you looked at the Saqqara Life lunch today, yeah, what was lunch today on the menu? So today was our chopped salad. And by the way, on average, you get about 180 over a week. But every single day, if you're doing breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you're getting over 70 different ingredients. And so in the lunch today, you got 17. Wow. And that's, you know, it's one of our pillars of nutrition is getting a diversity of plants. And it's really hard to do. Our, it's uh, so hard to do. Our president, Freya, she always talks about uh, our pantry and our kitchens is like the most valuable place on the planet because it's just like so many diverse ingredients from all over the world, like in the highest quality. And that's why it's, you know, it's why people often think I'm a cook. And I'm like, no, no, no. I started a food company, (laughs) one, because I don't want to cook. And I'm actually, you know, I had to really learn how to cook. And then two, that's what's so expensive is like making sure your pantry represents the diversity that you can and probably should be getting. So I'm curious, do you know the average number of ingredients or different plant species people are getting in a, in a day? Yeah, it's really abysmal. So if you think just about the beans and greens recommendation, the basic recommendation, 
three servings of beans and greens per week. I mean, that it should be three a day, but three yeah. servings that the USDA recommends. Guess what percentage of Americans get that on any given week? Mm, under 10. Less than 5%. Oh, geez. Less than 5%. This breaks my heart. This is an old statistic, so I don't know if it's still true, but it used to be that combined the number of Americans going to McDonald's a day was 7%. So 7% are going to McDonald's and less than 5% are eating a minimum three servings of beans and greens. And so this is not when you then look at the tragically high rates that we have had of deaths and poor outcomes from COVID, as well as the tragically high rates we have of diabetes and high blood pressure and obesity and hypertension and heart disease, et cetera. This is not a coincidence. This is not dropping from the sky into our laps because we're unlucky. We are eating in a way, not you, not me, not most of the people I'm sure listening to this, but we are eating in a way as a society that is virtually guaranteed to make us sick. And to make us susceptible. And I think, you know, people maybe didn't think about stuff like heart disease and stroke. It's an abstraction. It's some, yeah, maybe that will happen when I'm older. But, you know, when you see people dropping dead of an infectious illness, like literally all around you, it really makes you think about it differently. It really breaks my heart. And, you know, McDonald's and fast food has been picked on for decades, as it should be. But, you know, who I think really needs to be picked on is our grocery store. Like the people making the food that I remember my grandpa early on before he passed, I was very close to him. And I had this, I had to have this ah, like come to Jesus moment with him where I was like, you can't be doing the insure. You can't just like grab anything in the grocery store. And he's like, but my doctor recommended insure. And if they put it in the grocery store, like it's a food item, why would it be bad for me? And I was like, great question. But I don't know why. Well, it's it's very complicated why and, and politicized, unfortunately. But the grocery store is mostly our enemy, even the fresh side. Totally, it's like even totally. when you're thinking about quality, I understand why people are so exhausted by this health conversation because you literally have to put up a fight every single time you put something in your mouth with the way the, the world is right now. And, you know, when you think about stuff like Ensure, edible food-like substance that's what that is. So exactly. it's a very simple definition of food. You know, Michael Pollan in his great book, In Defensive Food, has some wonderful advice on that and his food rules. But it's basically something that nourishes us. It's something that once was alive. So it was caught from the water or raised on the ground or grew on a tree, a vine, a bush, a shrub. It's not something that comes out of a factory. And so when people want to know, well, what kind of processed food? Because they're like, oh, I have these gluten-free crackers and this, you know, and I'm like, let me just give you a very simple way of thinking about this. Did this food item make a stop in the factory on its way to you? So, you know, just like if you think of something like applesauce versus an apple or lentil chips versus a lentil, right? So trying to really think about food in its natural state, because we know that once it makes a stop in the factory on its way to the supermarket, it is a completely different item. I mean, think about corn. They make tires from corn, tires to put on a, on a car. It's crazy, right? That's corn. So it's just not the same thing. And so eating food in as natural a state as possible, and it's inconvenient. It can be expensive, but to me, there's, there's nothing that's more worthwhile because it literally is what you put in is what you get out of it. Yeah. And 
it can be expensive and it also, it doesn't have to be. We work with an incredible foundation here in New York City called Wellness in the Schools where they teach young children how to cook and introduce ingredients that they might normally, it's underserved neighborhoods, schools in underserved neighborhoods, ingredients they might not even be familiar with. Like I remember introducing spaghetti squash. They're just like, what is spaghetti squash? Like never even seen it. So sometimes and oftentimes education is the most important part. And I feel like when it comes to adults right now, it's really more about unlearning, like unlearning that you can just go to the grocery store and it's kind of like that can be your diet. It's like actually it's what you said. It takes time. It takes planning. Yeah. What else would you want to spend on when it's such an indicator? It's that indicator of gut health, which is, as we just talked about, the queen bee of overall health. And I'm curious, do you know the, I would assume like that the five plants people are getting in their diet is like wheat, corn. Yeah. Potato, white processed sugar cane, potato, soy. And now for a quick break, we wanted to take a moment to tell you guys about the foundation, which is a packet of your daily essential supplements, all saccharified, so to speak, meaning completely clean, plant-based, bioavailable, and coming from whole food sources. Lots of times people think that supplements are just pills that you take, but really you should use the same level of scrutiny and standards that you would for your food. So these supplements are not only incredibly effective, but also incredibly clean. After taking them just for a couple weeks, you'll feel increased energy, better digestion, more restful, deep sleep, brain clarity, and boosted immunity. And we like to think of this as our nutritional insurance. So yes, first and foremost, you want to get your nutrients from the foods that you eat every single day. But if you are a Saccharolite, which we know you are since you're listening, you know that we believe in eating clean and playing dirty, that none of us are perfect, nor would we want to be. Sometimes life gets in the way. And even though I get Saqqara food delivered to me every week, some weeks I just don't eat as well as I wish I, I could have. And so this is a great way to make sure you're getting all of the essential nutrients you need to feel and look your best. And for all of you Sakara lights out there right now, we're gifting you $15 to use towards your first purchase of the foundation. Just use podcast 15 at checkout on Sakara.com. And we put a lot of love and work into creating these supplements over the past three years at least. So we hope that you love them just as much as we do. Enjoy. Let's get back to the episode. As a physician, I, I'm not happy admitting this, but the medical community has worked hard with the pharmaceutical company and the sort of industrial food complex to alienate people from this concept, right? And to alienate us from this idea that A, we are in the driver's seat and B, we have control based on what we eat and what we do. When you make people feel like they're a victim and they don't have any control, then they have to rely on a prescription 
or a medical intervention, you know, a pharmaceutical fix, which don't get me wrong, those have their place. I'm very glad that we have pharmaceuticals for when people need them. But so much of the stuff we're being treated for, we can actually take care of on our own by just making different choices with what we eat, et cetera. But there is an incredible amount of commerce being made by this. You know, you think about autoimmune diseases and drugs to treat them. I mean, this is a trillion dollar industry versus organic farmers, you know, totally. they're, they're not supporting a lot of the medical studies. You can't patent broccoli. <laughs> that was actually going to be my next question is, can you talk to us about autoimmune disorders and the gut connection? Because we see a lot of people coming to Saqqara with autoimmune disorders yeah. and we tend to probably be their very last stop because my guess is their second to last stop is someone like yourself who's finally a doctor that's listening to them and isn't just going to, just going to prescribe medication but also has other tools to offer them. So can you talk about the gut and autoimmune connection? Yeah, and I'll tell you, as a gastroenterologist, my main area of expertise is something called inflammatory bowel disease. And that's really two sister diseases, Crohn's disease, which can affect any part of the GI tract from the mouth all the way down to the anus, but typically involves a small intestine and sometimes a colon and ulcerative colitis, which just affects the colon. And one thing we know for sure is that the rates of autoimmune diseases are skyrocketing. So it's somewhere around one in five Americans right now. And so if you don't yourself have an autoimmune disease, you probably know someone who has them. The list has grown to a little over a hundred. So things like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis that I talked about, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, lupus, eczema, psoriasis, diabetes. I mean, there's so many different, these are some of the more common ones. So, you know, if we think about, okay, why are we seeing this epidemic of autoimmune diseases? I mean, these are all what we think of as modern plagues, right? Because a hundred years ago, very few of these diseases exist. And now it's like, Every year, there's a new autoimmune disease and millions of people who have them. So let's go back historically a little bit, because I just find this stuff mind-blowing to think that we are actually creating disease every decade. So in the 1950s, this researcher at the London School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, what David Strawn, was tasked by the government in Britain with figuring out why they were seeing skyrocketing rates of autoimmune diseases, particular hay fever, which is like asthma and eczema in British kids. So he embarked on this 21-year study of, I think it was 17,000 kids, and he followed them from birth to adulthood. I mean, talk about patient, right? A 21-year research study with 17,000 people. So he made two startling discoveries. The first was that Kids who were in families with lots of siblings where they were getting sick all the time had very low rates of autoimmune diseases. That was the first. And the second was that kids from more affluent families, and at the time, I mean, this is very different now, but at the time in 1950s London, affluence was associated with more hand washing and bathing, et cetera, because you had indoor plumbing and you know you could do these things. And they found he found that the richer kids who were super clean actually had the highest rates of autoimmune diseases. So this formed the basis for something that we now know today as a hygiene hypothesis. And it basically says that people who grew up in a super clean environment, and that can be super clean because of a lot of hand washing and bathing. It can be super clean because of antibiotics that you yourself are taking or the ones you're ingesting in animal products. 80% of all the antibiotics used in the US are used in the animal industry. 
So you can be clean in that sense where you're actually ridding your body of important microbes through the food you're eating. It can be household sanitizers, household cleaners that you use. It can be the fact that you're eating food that's been very pesticized and processed. So there are all sorts of things that contribute to this sort of super sanitary lifestyle we live. But what's very clear is that living in an environment like that is associated with a high rate of autoimmune diseases because we actually need exposure to germs and to dirt to train our immune system. So that our immune system, we need to be sick as little kids. I mean, not deathly ill, but we need to be exposed to stuff so that our immune system can say, yeah, not a big deal. Yes, react here. Yes, make a big reaction. So that training, and I like to use the analogy, it's like a kid with super overprotective parents who then gets out into the world and is like, ah, you know, I don't know how to do anything because my parents have done everything for me. Yeah. I mean, we see so many people with autoimmune disorders and I do, you mentioned this a little earlier, but I do just want to say like, I hope it's motivating for everyone listening that we do have so much control. And also it doesn't mean that if you are suffering, that it's your fault. Like there's so much in our environment that we don't get to control. Like glyphosate is the number one sprayed chemical on the planet. And it's even if you eat organic and you do your best, it's in our waterways, it's everywhere similar to antibiotics, et cetera. So, you know, we can all do our best, but there still are things outside of our control, which is one of the reasons that I say, whatever is in your control, use that toggle because that's the only toggle that that we really have. And so focus on the things that you can control. So you talked about making sure our environment isn't too clean. I know you have other ways to ensure a healthy microbiome too. Like you talk about the dirt, making sure you get in the dirt, We talked about the diversity of plants. And I know you've talked about stress being a big indicator for gut health too. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So this idea that what is in our brain is not in our body, I'll give you an example of that. If a huge snake all of a sudden started to slither in front of me, I I am petrified by snakes, a couple of things would happen. My hair would stand on end, my blood pressure would go up, my heart rate would go up, my respiratory rate would go up, I'd start to sweat. All of these things just because, you know, the snake hasn't bitten me or done anything. In fact, I could probably make myself a little revved up just thinking about a snake to some extent. So it's just an example that what is in your brain, seeing something scary, thinking about something scary is also very much in your body. And, you know, we have these two aspects of the nervous system parasympathetic and sympathetic. And the sympathetic nervous system is our fight or flight system that revs us up so that if there's back in the day, a T-Rex, although my daughter here would tell me, mommy, humans were not around when there's a T-Rex, you should know that. So (laughs) let me not use that example. Let's just say a lion escaped from the zoo, which is a couple of miles from where I live and is charging towards me. My sympathetic nervous system would rev me up and would secrete norepinephrine, epinephrine to energize me so that I could run away from danger. The problem is so many of us live a life where our sympathetic system is constantly revved up, meeting deadlines, worrying about our kids. What should we eat? Should we not eat? Should I get this? So we're in a state of constant fight or flight. And while the acute fight or flight can be useful for getting you out of danger, that chronic fight or flight is really bad for our immune system. It sort of exhausts our immune system. And actually, Danielle, I just quickly want to go back to autoimmune disease just for a second, because I forgot to say that where I trained, it was basically, you know, you have an autoimmune disease, you use medication. 
not necessarily big gun medication, but it was a pharmaceutical fix. Now it's biologics, steroids, a lot of immunosuppression. And of course, the problem with that is it suppresses your immune system. So it increases your risk for infection and also cancer when you have a, an underactive immune system. But in our practice, we have about an 80% success rate getting people off of those drugs using primarily nutritional therapy. I mean, we also work with people in terms of how they're sleeping and lots of other things too. We use some probiotics, et cetera, but it, it is like magic to me. And it is honestly the absolutely most gratifying part of what I do professionally is having somebody come in and say, I'm on this drug and my disease is not even well-controlled and working with them. And you know, it's, it's not a hundred percent. We're just around 79, 80%, but helping them get their disease into remission and helping them understand the factors many of which, as you said, are beyond their control. I mean, people are born via C-section, they're given antibiotics at birth, they live in an environment where they're exposed to different things, but helping them to try and sort of undo that damage through what they eat and how they live, and then seeing their disease going to remission off the medications, it's the best. It's so beautiful. And at Sakara, our mission is to help people create their toolkit to getting back to health. And our hope is like Sakara is one of the tools in your toolkit, but there can be a huge toolkit and we want you to have a big toolkit because the scariest part is when you're going through something like an autoimmune disorder and your pendulum swings way over, the scariest part is that you don't know how to get back. And so like having a toolkit that you can rely on to get back to feeling really good and hopefully staying that way yeah. is is everyone's dream. And I always say like a healthy person has a thousand dreams and an unhealthy person has one. And that it just sticks with me to one, not take anything for granted and two, continue to do the things that will keep us healthy and keep us feeling good. And I know you are also working on, I, I won't speak to it yet because I don't know if you want to speak to the exactly what it is, but I do just really want to say that you are one of very few humans on the planet who speaks like this to what it means to be going through something like an autoimmune disorder, which I have so many friends and so many clients who are going through it and it's terrifying. And Often they've been made to feel like they're crazy or that they're going to be on medication for the rest of their life. So thank you for the work that you do. And I know you're working on helping other practitioners and people who are working with clients and patients have more of the knowledge that you have, which is just so beautiful. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Danielle. Yeah. And I want to get to Q&A because that's the beautiful part of the live podcast here. So let's do Q&A and then I'm actually going to end with our light work. So let me read a couple questions. So this is, Let how do I pronounce this beautiful name? Letitia from mm -hmm. Palm Beach, Florida. She asks, what are some of the telltale signs that our gut bacteria levels are out of balance? Yeah, thank you, Letitia. That's such a great question. So there are lots of different things and I don't want to make you think that everything that's wrong with you is because of the gut bacteria being off, but there are some physical manifestations. So for example, yeast overgrowth, if you're having frequent vaginal yeast infections, or if you have thrush in your mouth, that sort of white coating of the tongue, that can be a sign. Some people develop a rash around the rectum that almost looks like diaper rash, but in an adult. So those are signs. The yeast overgrowth is a sign that you don't have enough healthy bacteria. And then there are some symptoms that are not so much physical signs, but 
bloating is a common one, fatigue, inability to lose weight or sometimes gain weight. Some people have diarrhea, some people have bloating, some people have really bad smelly gas. But if we think about dysbiosis, you know, we talked about the gut being the engine and all the different spokes, different autoimmune diseases too. So even diseases like heart disease is felt to be a disease of dysbiosis, coronary artery disease, some neurological illnesses like Parkinson's, some mood disorders, autoimmune diseases. These are all diseases that have their root in dysbiosis. And again, there can be other contributing factors, environmental and genetic. But often when we look at the microbiome in these different conditions, we see a disruption. And of course, there are lots of other reasons that people could be fatigued, for example, right? You could be fatigued because you're anemic or you're hypothyroid. So I don't want to give you the impression that all of these problems really begin from a disrupted gut. But I want to give you a sense that they're really diffuse signs and symptoms that you can have. And the brain-gut connection is really fascinating because, for example, there've been experiments with where they've infected mice with Campylobacter jejuni. That's a common foodborne illness caused by Campylobacter. And the mice develop anxiety. And part of why I find that so fascinating is I see people in my practice who have what we call post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome, meaning they have had an infection, their bowel habits are changed, but they're also finding their mood has changed. And now they're super depressed or super anxious. So I see real manifestations outside of the mice studies. I see this actually in my patients are people who have active gut inflammation from their colitis and then their colitis goes into remission and their mood changes. So it's really all connected. I want to make sure I squeeze in two more questions. So one actually just came from our community chat from Rebecca, and she has a really good question that I've heard conflicting science about. So her question is around allergies in general. Hers is a peanut allergy, which I believe is a little different. So maybe we talk about it kind of in two ways. So one, like, can you, can you reverse allergies if you heal the gut? Is that possible? And then she said, how reversible are autoimmune diseases as well? And would you consider allergies and autoimmune? That's kind of my add-on. Rebecca, thanks for that great question, because you've actually linked together two different conditions that are both a sign of one problem, which is an overactive immune system. So remember, I talked about the Goldilocks immune system, right? Just right. An immune system that's too reactive if it's reacting to internal factors that can end up with autoimmune disease. So with autoimmune disease, you're reacting to your body's own tissue. If you have arthritis, you're reacting to your joints. If you have psoriasis, you're reacting to your skin. If you have colitis, you're reacting to gut bacteria in your colon. So autoimmune disease is an overreactive system that's reacting to internal threats, if you will. Allergies like food allergies, peanut allergies, things like that, a severe reaction to bee stings, that's an overreactive system also, but you're now overreacting to external threats, right? And then with the internal, if we take that down to an underreactive system, underreactive system, internal threats, cancer, because the body's cancer surveillance system isn't working when the immune system is underactive and external threats would be infection. So if we drew a box, we'd have Goldilocks immune system in the middle, on the left side, where we have internal threats, overreactive, autoimmune. External, overreactive, allergies. Underreactive, internal, cancer. Underreactive, 
external infections. So I really want to make sure you have that. And so what you've identified, Rebecca, is a link between two things, food allergies and autoimmune disease. And while we know that an altered gut microbiome can be at the heart of these two things, there can be other factors to involve. So we do see food sensitivities and food allergies, particularly also something we didn't spend too much time touching on, but the health of the gut lining, right? And leaky gut and how that can contribute to food allergies. So healing the gut in general can help with many food allergies, but it doesn't always help because sometimes there are other factors involved. And the immunologists, when they get out their diagrams, like my GI diagram is like a C, oh, that's a healthy poop. Their diagrams are like, you know, antibodies and TH1 and right. TH2 and like super complex stuff. So the reactions that are going on in the immune system, while they're reacting to the microbes and the health of the microbiome, there are other factors also that can influence the immune system. But here's the deal. You can only potentially improve with a healthy gut, right? Even if it doesn't get rid of your peanut allergy, even if it doesn't completely put your autoimmune disease into remission, you are certainly better off than you were before with a healthy gut. And maybe it means that you can go down and take a lower dose of medication for your autoimmune disease, or maybe a medication that's less toxic. Maybe you can get off the steroid and get onto something that's going to cause much less distress in your body. And so remission is always a goal for me with my patients, but any improvement, any nudge in that direction towards better health is a step in the right direction. And this was a question. Let's see, who was it from? I loved this question. Madison from Maryland. So she wants to know, like, how can we, if we can't find a doctor like you, how do we have like a positive relationship with our doctor who is maybe telling us something like your gut doesn't matter or your gut isn't connected to your anxiety or it, hopefully there's fewer and fewer of those, but how can we help them understand more of what you're talking about? This again is such an important issue because the truth is I was one of those doctors. You know, when I came out of medical school, I firmly believed in, oh, we have all these great drugs and medical interventions. And I was very conventional in my thinking, really, because I hadn't been taught or exposed to anything else. And everything that I know that is useful and groovy and integrative, I really learned from patients who taught me. I mean, I remember so clearly the first patient with Crohn's who used diet to change what was going on in her gut. She had severe Crohn's. She'd been on a bunch of like super duper big gun drugs. And she moved to New Jersey and was gone for a couple of years. And she came back and she came to see me and she was feeling great. And I was like, what are you on? And she was like, nothing. And she started telling me about this diet and how she you know, wasn't eating meat and gluten and dairy and this was a late 90s. So we just were in a completely different place. And I remember thinking, yeah, she probably thinks she's feeling well. And I remember scoping her and just being like, <laughs> as I was doing the colonoscopy, it looked normal. Wow. It looked normal. Her severe ulcerations were gone. And I was scared, quite frankly. I was like, oh my goodness, like what's going on? And I remember telling her, oh, it's like driving a car without insurance. Like you might be okay, but if you crash, you're going to be in trouble. You need to get back on medication. So I was literally one of those doctors who was like, oh yeah, diet, sure. You know, patients would come in talking about the specific carbohydrate diet and all these different things. And I would literally be in the back rolling my eyes. But over time, through these generous patients who 
decided to engage with me rather than just fire me and move on. I really started to learn. And then we started to do our own studies. Our first study was just a small study of 12 patients with inflammatory bowel disease, retrospective study, and the results were so remarkable. So my best piece of advice is if you think this doctor is, I mean, if they're just an asshole, that's a different story, (laughs) then just get rid of them and find somebody else, but engage them. And if you're going to show them studies, I think this is important. Make sure you're bringing them something that's really in the scientific literature, that's peer-reviewed. Don't bring them like a blog article from somebody, your favorite health guru. Bring them a scientific article because you'd be shocked how many physicians are not reading the literature. So they're basing things on when they were in medical school 30 years ago, and they may just not be familiar. I think it's helpful to do it. So really try and have a conversation with them. And one way to frame it is to say, like, if you have autoimmune disease and your doctor is really pushing an immunosuppressive drug and you want to try dietary therapy is to say, I really appreciate that I have these medical options. I want to try something a little more holistic with diet, but you know, if it, and I hope it works, but if it doesn't work, I'd be really happy to come back and hear more about what your thoughts are on some of these medications. You know, I hope you'll be patient with me while I try some of these more holistic things. So you really want to try and pull them into the fold, not make it seem like either or, because, you know, I have patients in my practice who I say, I don't think you're a good candidate for nutritional therapy right now. Your disease is too severe. We've got to use some of these big guns and get you to a better place. And then we can talk about nutritional therapy. So it's not always everybody walks in the door, eat some plants and you'll be fine. And so really try and engage them with this idea that you're not opposed. You're glad the drugs exist if you really need them, but you want to try some other ways of doing things and you hope that they will be patient and be there with you on the journey. Beautiful. Educate them. And last question, we get a lot of questions in general at Sakara about weight loss. So this question was in particular, like, can Sakara help me lose weight? This is Veronica from New York. But maybe we zoom it out just for nature of the podcast. And can you just speak to general weight loss and the health of the gut and how that relates to, you know, some of the pillars of Sakara, which are making sure you're getting enough colors, enough plants, the right kind of fats, et cetera. Yeah. And Veronica, I think this idea that we should only be concerned about what's going on inside and we don't care about what the outside looks like. Like I reject that. I care about what my outside looks like too. You know, I want to be glowy and have healthy skin and hair and, and be an ideal weight for sure. And so let me tell you about this fascinating study. Th- these twins were on the Oprah Winfrey show back in the day. So that should tell you, <laughs> these are genetically identical twins where one twin was obese and the other twin was lean. And researchers from Washington University, WashU in St. Louis, took microbes. They basically took stool from each of the twins and they transplanted that stool into germ-free mice who are normal size. And guess what happened? The mouse who got the stool from the lean twin stayed lean. And the mouse who got the, the stool from the obese twin started to gain weight without any change in what they were eating or any change in their diet regimen, right? So this showed us that, I mean, it was, what was fascinating was it was across species, human to mouse. So this showed us that 
there are things going on in the microbiome that can very much determine weight. And it's not just calorie in, calorie out. And we all know this. We all have friends who like eat crazy amounts of food and are lean and, and friends who, or maybe you yourself, where you like look at something and you gain weight. And we know that microbes can change what's called the energy harvest. So microbes can actually speed up the motility in your gut so that there's less time to absorb calories. Microbes can affect the amount of hormones like insulin that gets secreted that's responsible for deposition of calories as fat. Microbes can even consume calories themselves. So we know that if we give two people the exact same meal, same nutrient content, identical meal, based on their microbial composition, they can metabolize that food differently and have a very different energy harvest. And one person might pull 800 calories to be deposited as you know fat from that, and another might pull 400. And, and we know that. And we know, for example, that there's a type of microbe called Kristen Senalacea. I just love that. Kristen Senalacea. You make all these just, names you, sound so beautiful, by the way, even the quote bad ones. <laughs> oh, wait till we get into parasitology. Nicator Americanus. And Celostoma duodenale, that's old world and new world hookworm. Wow. I mean, parasitology is the best. But back to this. So we know that Kristen Senalacea is a bacteria that is actually inherited. Most of your microbiome is not inherited. It's built. I mean, you inherit your founding species from your mother, particularly if you're lucky enough to pass through her birth canal. But most of it is built based on how we live and what we eat, et cetera. But Kristen Senelisi is a particular type of microbe that is inherited that is associated with leanness. And I can think of many people I know who like they're the bean pole, their family, the rest of the people in the family are bean poles, right? But for the most part, it is really what you eat. So if I think of, for example, the Esselsteins, if you guys know the Esselsteins, Caldwell Esselstein, who wrote that great book, prevent and reverse heart disease, and they're a family of wonderful vegans doing good deeds in the world. They all are bean poles, but they all eat this magnificent high fiber diet too, right? Really what it comes down to is like, yes, the composition of the biome can determine, just like it can determine a lot of other things about our health, including susceptibility to COVID and outcome, it can determine whether we gain weight, how much weight we gain. But again, the catch 22 is we change the composition of the microbiome by right. changing they inform what we each eat. other. So the more of these healthy, yeah, the more of these healthy microbes you have from eating the high fiber diet, the less likely you are to have a lot of fat deposition. And I know we're out of time, but I do just want to do one quick question. I've been hearing a lot of people recently, maybe it's because everyone's traveling again, getting parasites. Like literally in the past week, I've had three people write me that they think they got a parasite from traveling. How do you know if it's a parasite versus just like regular dysbiosis? Well, I guess that would be dysbiosis also, but regular kind of like bacterial dysbiosis. And what do people do if, if they think it is a parasite or how can they be sure? Well, get a good stool test, first of all, and keep in mind that a lot of the commercial labs may not necessarily have the best assays for determining parasites. So you don't want to go to a lab that sort of overdiagnoses and claims everybody has a parasite. There are tons of those too, but you don't want to go to a lab that's basically not finding anything. So it's worthwhile talking to somebody, an infectious disease doctor, and getting a stool test. That's the first place to start because a lot of the symptoms of parasitic infestation are nonspecific, like itching and fatigue and night sweats. People have those for a lot of different reasons. 
So you want to, first of all, make sure you do have a parasite. And then if you do, if there is an option between a more natural way of taking care of it, and by natural, I mean literally trying to avoid some of the potent antiparasitic agents, because like antibiotics, a lot of those drugs will wipe out a lot of your healthy gut microbes too. So ideally you want to approach it from a, a more holistic way. Initially, usually I'll give my patients two rounds of a more a sort of easier psyllium husk, black walnut, et cetera, oil of oregano. And after two rounds, if it's not treated, then I will come at them with something a little more potent. But keep in mind, just like the yeast overgrowth, right? We really want to focus on repopulation because part of the reason why the parasite was able to kind of set in and become more, more chronic might be because you have dysbiosis. The CDC says 30% of Americans have a parasite or are exposed to a parasite at some point, but most people should be able to just like COVID, right? So ideally, if you're very healthy, you get exposed Maybe you get a little sick, but then you recover and you make a full recovery versus you get exposed to a parasite and then you're never the same and the parasite becomes more chronic. So while it's worth thinking about the parasite, you don't want to go all scorched earth right. and Such then a good kill point. off a lot of healthy microbes. Yeah. So you want to think about always repopulation, rewilding. I like this theory that like there's no villain in this story. It's just the balance of it all. Beautiful. Well, I think that's a beautiful place to do light work. We like to close with some sort of homework that helps each of us shine our lights a little or a lot brighter. So what do you have for us today? My favorite thing is this sort of dirt, sweat, vegetables, right? Dirt, sweat, veg. I want everybody to think about how they can get a little exposure to nature. If you're in New York City, just find a little patch of grass and sit on it. Don't don't sit on the dog poop. That's a little <laughs> too close. But so literally touch a tree, sit in a patch of grass, sit outside. There are things in the, what we call the open air factor. There are germicidal things in the air that are really good for us. So I want you to think about that. And in terms of vegetables, I love this one, two, three rule, one vegetable in the morning, two at lunch, three at dinner, or you can flip it. I do a smoothie in the morning, a green smoothie. So I get a bunch in the morning. But I really want you to think of a minimum of six servings of vegetables a day, because that means just in five days, you're going to get 30. But here's the thing, different vegetables. So not just six servings, like I had broccoli and then I had broccoli again, and then I had a little more broccoli, six different vegetables a day. I want you to think about doing. And obviously, if you're doing Saqqara, you're getting that like in half your breakfast, you're already there. But I want you to think about that. And then finally, our thoughts. My prevailing feeling during this pandemic is just gratitude. It's really changed so much for me. And the glass is sort of perennially half full. So for those, those of us who are lucky to be here relatively intact, be grateful. It is an incredible opportunity that we get to be here and we can do so much to improve our health and really starting by just how we think about things and having a positive outlook combined, of course, with your six different vegetables a day and a little nature. So beautiful. Thank you, Robin. Thank you so much for being here, Thank for you, being Danielle. with all of us and for the work that you do and you bring to the world. We're all so grateful for you. Well, I feel the same way. It's always so fun. I'm just sorry we couldn't be together in person, but coming up. Next time, we'll do a live, live one <laughs> in <Excellent>. person. <laughs> all right. Thank you all for joining and for coming. We're so grateful to have each of you. And thanks for chiming in on the community side, too. Have a beautiful day. Bye, everyone. 
Today, we're getting back to the basics of Sakara, And so we wanted to share a bit about our Sakara Signature Nutrition Program for all of those listeners that are new to us. We created this program after healing ourselves to help others feel the same transformation that we experienced through the power of food as medicine. This program is based on the science behind a whole food, plant-rich diet and has been crafted around our proprietary nine pillars of nutrition, which focuses on things like nutrient diversity and eating the rainbow, eating your water and getting enough sulfur-rich veggies into your diet, as well as cultivating body intelligence in order to have true mind, body, and soul transformation. The Sakara Signature Nutrition Program makes clean eating easy. It's entirely free from meat, gluten, dairy, refined sugar, pesticides, harmful chemicals, and GMOs. The menu is chef-crafted and changes weekly to highlight seasonal ingredients and recipes so you never have to sacrifice taste for eating healthy. If you're interested in learning more about our Sakara Signature Nutrition Program, head to sakara.com to see how you can customize the program to fit your needs and lifestyle. That's S-A-K-A-R-A dot com. And for a limited time, we wanted to give you all a gift of transformation. So use the code PODCAST20 at checkout for 20% off your first order of Sakara Life. I think so many of us are so busy these days trying to take care of the entire world around us, whether you're a busy professional or a mom. I encourage you to give this gift of nutrition to yourself. You deserve to feel amazing in your body. And when you nourish yourself, then you're able to better take care of the world around you and share your special gifts with the world.